Mindenki. I'm excited about uh, today's sermon. I've been reading from the book of Epistle, uh, the uh, Epistle to the Hebrews. I probably would have read it, I don't know, 25 times or 30 times, I don't know how, how, how many times. But I want to do that again with you today. And uh, in so doing, I want to present to you the glories of Christ from the book of Hebrews or the epistle to the Hebrews as seen through the filter of incarnation. And I want to give you three specific reasons why I want to do this. One, as you read the book of Hebrews, you will see what Christ has achieved because of his incarnation, because of the fact that he came down as one of us. And as you read the epistle to the Hebrews, you would see it, as it were, through a divine kaleidoscope of the various parts coming together and would excite your heart, as it did mine. And that's my prayer. And the second thing is when this epistle was written, the first, Christian, first century Christians were persecuted. And what was happening is Christians who had left Judea, Jews who had left Judaism, come to Christianity, were now going back uh, because of the persecution. They were surprised that God would make it you know, difficult for them. And so as they were going back, they would either mask their identity because what would happen is if you're a Christian, your property would get confiscated. 10% of that would go to the informants. 90% would be kept by the government and you're out in the street. And so uh, they were masking themselves or some of them were returning back to Judaism. Uh, and this year, 2015, has not been very different from what was happening before. I'm not sure if you... Let me give you just two statistics. One... Uh, one, something that you need to really be in prayer about, and the second, something that excites our heart. 2015, 1.3 million Christians in Iraq have been displaced. And um, it is said that by next Christmas, in that cradle of Christianity, there will be no Christians. And yet in 2015 and in the years past, it's been the time when most people have turned to Christ in that area too. Not just there, but worldwide. Uh, so that's, you know, God, away from the clamor and the, and the glamour of media, he's doing his work. Just like he said, the leaven and the dough which, which is rising, he's calling people to himself. And the third most exciting part about this uh, Hebrews is this, that when you read Hebrews, it's not written as a letter. It's written as a sermon. There's no who it's written to or who it's written by, but it starts off in a very oratorial style. It's written in Greek, um, you know, uh, literature, which really grabs your attention. The writer writes to grab your attention and then brings about the exhortation. You, we see him use that word in Hebrews 13 and 22, right? So... What I want to do today is I'm, I'm going to read the, the episode uh, to Hebrews. I'm going to read nine chapters, or eight chapters. But 
one thing that I want to bring to fore, one thing the writer brings to fore is the word perseverance. In, in spite of all the difficulties, all the things that are happening, he's bringing to our attention why we must persevere. And that, that's the objective for us to, to take home. All right, that we can understand. And so what I've done is, as I, as I begin to read, the verses are going to come up there, but I've taken the liberty to, to give you headings and also I would uh, add some footnotes. But just in reading the epistle, I want to encourage you, as you go back and as you just keep reading it, you will see God speak to you in a way that is just unbelievable. It's a wonderful Wonderful book. So allow me as I begin to read chapter 1, the advent of the Son. God spoke in the past in various times and in various ways to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The Son is the full and the final revelation. And the writer of the Hebrews in presenting Jesus as better than anything before or anything after, he is now going to give us seven reasons why Jesus is better than the angels. Okay, so Jesus is greater than the angels. One, because he inherited a superior name. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his essence. And the Son sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when the Son has had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I want you to notice this phrase, sat down at the right hand of God. Five times it appears, this time as he purges our sins. Thus the son became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to to theirs. And this name is Son of God. Jesus is greater than the angels too because the angels worship him. Referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you. And in another place, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when God again brings his firstborn into the world, God says, let let all the angels of God worship him. Listen to what God has to say about the angels. And God says to the angels, he makes his angels wince and as ministers a flame of fire. Jesus is greater than the angels three because Jesus is God. But of the Son, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a righteous rule is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, so God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. Jesus is greater than the angels for because Jesus is from eternity to eternity and you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The heavens and earth will perish, but you continue and they will all grow old like a garment and, your, and like a robe you will fold them up and like a garment you, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will never run out. Jesus is greater than the angels, five, because the angels are his servants. But to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet or for your feet? And this is the second reference of sitting down until the perishing of his enemies. Are the angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who 
those who inherit salvation. That is you and I, the ones who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2. Every once in a while, the Hebrew writer just pauses just right enough to, to admonish. And he does that five times, and this is the first one. The first admonition is the danger of drifting away. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For of the previous message spoken through the angels, that's the one that Moses received on Mount Sinai, proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience, that is every transgression against that message that Moses received, received its just penalty, meaning they were punished. How much more? Well, the message spoken through the Son, if that's violated, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This salvation was first communicated through the Lord in his incarnation and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, his apostles. And God confirmed the apostles' message with signs and wonders and various messages, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit were distributed according to God's will. Now, having given his first admonition, the writer resumes this discussion about the superiority of Christ. Jesus is greater than the angels, six, because all things are under Jesus' control. For God did not put the world to come about which we are speaking under the control of angels. Instead, someone testified somewhere, speaking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ in a prophetic sense from Psalm 8. What is man that you think of him, or the son of man that you you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels for a little while. You crowned him with glory and honor. And you put all things under the son's control. For when God put all things under the son's control, God left nothing outside of the son's control. Jesus is greater than the angel seven because he is our author, the captain, and the perfecter of our faith. Only Jesus could do this as he took on human flesh and became our savior. Though at present we do not see all things under Jesus' control, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by God's grace, he would experience death on behalf of everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. He who is God, the creator, the sustainer of all things, now brings your salvation and my salvation through the death on the cross. To make the pioneer, that's the author, the originator, the initiator, the pioneer of our salvation, perfect through sufferings. The Hebrew writer reminds us that Jesus Christ, through his incarnation, the reason why we think about Christmas, became the only one who could save us. But I think the question that really comes as we read this is why and how? And I want you to listen as the writer continues as he explains why the incarnation. And he gives us seven reasons why Jesus had to become like one of us. 
Why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? One, so that we can be called his brothers and sisters. For indeed, God who makes holy and those being made holy all have the same origin in the Father. That is, through Jesus' incarnation, we who are made holy have now the same origin as the one who made us holy, that is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will proclaim your name. Again, he says, I will be confident in him. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Two, so that he can destroy the devil and set us free from slavery. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity. That is, Jesus became like us. Isn't that the Christmas message? And so that through death, Jesus could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery all their lives because of the fear of death. For surely his concern is not for angels, but he is concerned. Oh, what a precious thought. He is concerned for Abraham's descendants. That is you and I, the Abraham's, Abraham's spiritual descendants. Why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Three, so that he can be a faithful high priest for the atonement of our sins. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. And I want you to notice, as the writer continues, he gives qualifiers of, of the word high priest, and he gives su nine such qualifiers. And here's the first one. So that he became a merciful and faithful high priest in the things relating to God, to make an atonement for the sins of the people. Why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? For, so that he can help those who are tempted. For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Chapter 3. And now the writer moves on to his next argument. He is showing how Jesus is better than Moses and exhorts, therefore, to consider the Son. He is going to give us seven exhortations to consider the Son. Therefore, holy brethren, those who share this heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Consider the Son, one, because the Son is more glorious than Moses. The Son was faithful to the Father who appointed the Son as Moses also was in all God's house. For the Son has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Consider the Son, Two, because the son is preeminent over the servant. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. Moses' work was an illustration of God's truth that God would reveal later through Jesus Christ. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. But I want you to notice we are only his house when we persevere. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Consider the son. Three, because of the threat of the hardening of our hearts. 
Here's the second admonition, the danger of disobedience. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, oh, that today you will listen as the Son speaks. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of resting, uh, testing, sorry, in the wilderness. The Spirit of God is saying, be of a, spirit, of a teachable spirit. Therefore, your fathers tested me and tried me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I became provoked at, at that generation and said, their hearts are always wandering, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my anger, they will never enter my rest. Consider the son, for because of the threat of apostasy and unbelief. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil an unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. But exhort one, other, one another each day. You and I have this role to encourage and to warn as long as it's called today that none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. You see, when our heart is hardened, we are the last ones to know about it. And therefore, we are to exhort and to encourage and to warn each other against this hardening of the hearts. For we have become partners with Christ, for in, for in fact, we hold our initial confidence firm until the end. We are saved not just by our initial confession, but through our continued perseverance. And the writer reminds us again and again. Consider the son, five, because of the consequence of the hardening of hearts. He gives an Old Testament example. As it says, oh, that today you will listen, as the Lord says, Lord speaks, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, for which once heard and rebelled. Was it not all who came out of Egypt under Moses' leadership? And against whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose dead bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did the Lord swear and they, that they would never enter his rest? Was it not those who were disobedient? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Notice, that, notice these three things. They could not enter because they sinned, they were disobedient, and they did not believe. Chapter 4, and halfway through giving us this exhortation about considering the son, the Hebrew writer picks up his presentation as to why incarnation. Why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Five, so that we can find our eternal rest in Jesus Christ. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, that is while the invitation is still open. Let us fear, lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, but it did them no good because they did not share the faith of those who listened to God. Not sharing the faith or listening is the fourth reason. And our prayer really is that we would not just be hearers of God's word, but that we would be doers of his word. For only we who believe can enter God's rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. 
For though this rest has been ready since God made the world, for God has spoken somewhere about the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And to repeat the text cited earlier, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, some have still to enter it. And listen to the warning. Yet those to whom it was previously proclaimed did not enter because of disobedience. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Consequently, there is a Sabbath rest in the future for the people of God. For the one who enters rest has also rested from his or her works, just as God did from his own works. The Hebrew writer here is talking about the salvation rest that we find in Jesus Christ. And so he's bringing us back to the fact of considering the son. Consider the son, six, because of the danger of disobedience. Thus, we must make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same pattern of disobedience. Consider the Son, seven, because of the testimony of the inspired Word of God. For the Word of God is living and active, and since it's living and active, it will produce effect. Sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the point of dividing the soul from the spirit, the joints from the marrow, it's able to judge the desires and the thoughts of the heart. And just as the joint and the marrow, the heart and the soft, the soul and the spirit, which refers to our old nature and our new nature, the fleshly emotions and the regenerated spirit, only the word of God will help us understand from which of these two are our emotions coming. And no creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. God will hold us accountable for what we heard and did or did not do. And having said this, he ends again the wonderful truths about the incarnation with two things that he brings about. He says, our bold approach to the throne and that, and that Jesus is, his, is our priesthood, uh, is our priest. And this Christmas, I think that's a great message to hold on to, that we have access to God and that he is our priest. Why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Six, so that we can approach the throne of God. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. And as you read this, I cannot help imagine a Jew who found Christ jumping up with joy because they've seen both sides, the law and the grace and the access that they now have before God. And in some ways, it's the same thing with us. We who are dead, now regenerated, who have life in Christ, that we will understand that, that we have access to God himself. Chapter 5, why the incarnation of Jesus Christ? 7, so that Jesus would be appointed as our high priest. 
For every human high priest is taken from among the people. First, Jesus had to become a human and appointed to represent them uh, before God. So second, Jesus had to be appointed, and Jesus meets both these qualifications to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. A human high priest is able to deal compassionately with those who are ignorant and erring since he also is subject to weakness. That is, he is just like them. And for this reason, this human high priest is obligated to make sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. That, this is where Jesus is different. You know, we've been thinking about this, how Jesus is better. He's a better high priest. And the writer explains that. Jesus is a high priest because he is appointed. As no one assumes this honor on his own initiative, that is, no one can force themselves to take on this role of being a high priest, and only when called to do it by God, as in, in fact, Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming the high priest, but the one who glorified Christ was God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As also in another place, God says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a high priest, too, because of his obedience. During his earthly life, Christ offered both requests and supplication with loud cries and tears to the one who, are, who was able to save him from, the death, from death, and Christ was heard because of his devotion. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And Christ became the source of our eternal salvation. And Jesus was designated by God as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So how do we respond to this precious truth about Jesus Christ? And so what the Hebrew writer does is he gives another seven implications of what it means to have Jesus Christ as our high priest. What are the implications of Jesus being the high priest? One, be discerning. Stop being a baby. On this topic, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become sluggish in hearing. You just don't want to hear the writer is saying. And, and you have been believers so long now, but you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For everyone who lives in milk is inexperienced and the message of right, in the message of righteousness because he or she is an infant. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training and practice have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Chapter 6. What are the implications of Jesus being the high priest? Two, be growing and maturing. Therefore, we must progress beyond the foundational instructions about Christ and move on to maturity. Let us go instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding that we will have this hunger and desire to know more about this person called Jesus Christ.
the one who's won our hearts. What are the implications of Jesus Christ being the high priest? Three, do not hold Christ in contempt. For it is not possible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, became partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then having committed apostasy or have or fall away by rejecting the truth to renew them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up to contempt. What are the implications of Jesus Christ being a high priest for? Learn from an agricultural example. You're judged by your fruits. When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessings. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is useless and is about to be cursed. Its fate is to be burnt. The Hebrew writer is saying that if we are God's children, we will bear fruits for God's glory. Even the nature teaches us the simple lesson. What are the implications of Jesus being the high priest? Five, we must demonstrate good works. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with the evidence of salvation in your lives. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name in having served and continuing to serve the saints. Love for God's saints is a good sign of your salvation. But we passionately want each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness for the fulfillment of your hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promise. Follow the examples of those who persevere through faith and that's what the writer is saying. What are the implications of Jesus being the high priest? Six, learn from the example of Abraham to persevere. Now, when God made his promise to Abraham, since God could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you greatly and multiply your descendants abundantly. And so by persevering, here's the word again, by persevering, Abraham inherited the promise. What are the implications of Jesus being the high priest? We learn that God is all in. By giving us Jesus Christ, God is saying, I'm all in. He has given us the best. So the question we ask is, what's preventing us from giving our best? Why are we hesitant? Why are we so resistant? And God clearly shows that his purposes are unchangeable. For people, when they make vows by, by uh, for people make vows by something greater than themselves, whenever there's a problem, an oath or a pledge is the final decider for confirmation. In the same way, God wanted to demonstrate more clearly to the heirs of promise, that's you and I, that his purpose was unchangeable. He's not going to change his mind. And so he intervenes with an oath. God confirms with a double assurance, a promise and a pledge. A promise from God is good enough, but he adds a pledge alongside so that we who have found a refuge in God may find a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Again, we are encouraged to persevere since it's impossible for God to lie. 
God is showing that Jesus is trustworthy above all else. We have this hope like an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which remains inside the veil. That's inside the heavenly tabernacle, where Jesus, our forerunner, entered on our behalf since he has become the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Being a priest from the, in the order of Melchizedek, we need to understand what that term means. And so before he does that, what the writer does is he gives us seven reasons as to why the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of, of, of the, the Levitical priesthood. And, and thereby is showing to us that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is much superior. Here are the seven reasons why Melchizedek is better. One, because he's greater than the Levitical priesthood. How? Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as Abraham was returning from defeating the kings and blessed Abraham. To Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tithe of everything. Melchizedek's name first means the king of righteousness. After that, the king of Salem, that is king of, the, king of peace. Notice that the, the sequence, first the king of righteousness, then the king of peace. That's the sequence for our salvation too. Righteousness in Jesus Christ and therefore the peace with God. Melchizedek is better too because he received tithes from Abraham. There is no record of Melchizedek's father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or, or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. And uh, it, was, it was important that a human priest would have to show the genealogy being connected back to, uh, to Levi, but not Melchizedek. But see how great Melchizedek must be if Abraham the patriarch gave Melchizedek a tithe of his plunder. Melchizedek is better, three, because he's better than the Levitical priests. And what about the sons of Levi who received the priestly office? They are authorized by law to collect a tithe from the people who too are the descendants of Abraham, just like the sons of Levi. But Melchizedek, who does not share the ancestry, collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who possessed the promise. Melchizedek is better because he lives on. Now, without dispute, the inferior is better, is blessed by the superior. The priest who collects tithe are men who die. So Melchizedek is greater than they are because we are told that he lives on. Melchizedek is better, five, because he's greater than Levi. And it, is, and it could be said that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid a tithe through Abraham. For Levi was still in his ancestor Abraham's loins when Melchizedek met him. Melchizedek is better six because the Levitical priesthood has been replaced. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? Melchizedek is better, seven, because the Levitical law has been changed. And if the priesthood is changed, the law must also be changed to permit it. And therefore, by contrasting the two priesthood, he's trying to establish now the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And from here, he gives 12 reasons why Jesus is better. And at this point, if I can ask you all to rise up and stand with me, I know you've, you've been listening to this, but this is the word of God. I want you to understand. And as I read God's word, I want you to be blessed 
as you recognize the 12 reasons why Jesus is better. The priesthood of Jesus is superior. One, because Jesus is not from the order of Levi and Aaron. Jesus to whom these things are said belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord has, is descended from Judah, yet Moses said nothing about priests in connection with the tribe of Judah. The priesthood of Jesus is superior too because his priesthood is by the power of indestructible life. This change has been made very clear since a different priest who is like Melchizedek has appeared, who has become a priest not by legal regulations about physical descent, that is not by proving his genealogy to Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. For here is a testimony about Jesus. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And yet the old requirement about the priesthood was set aside because it was weak and useless. The priesthood of Jesus is superior, three, because of the better hope that draws us to God. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The priesthood of Jesus is superior for because it is established by God's solemn oath. This new system was established with a solemn oath. Aaron's descendants became priests without such an oath. But there was an oath regarding Jesus. For God said to Jesus, the Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever. The priesthood of Jesus is superior, five, because he is our earnest, just like the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.14. Accordingly, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The priesthood of Jesus is superior, six, because it's permanent. There are many priests under the old system for death prevented them from remaining in office, but Jesus Christ holds his priesthood permanently since he lives forever. The death of the human priest prevented them from continuing as a high priest, but Jesus is a permanent high priest. So Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He is the kind of priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. The priesthood of Jesus is superior, seven, because of the permanence of his sacrifice. Unlike other human priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices every day. The human high priest did this for, for, for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sin. The law appointed high priests who are limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son with an oath. And God's son has been made a perfect high priest forever. Hallelujah. Chapter 8. The priesthood of Jesus is superior. 8. Because of a better covenant. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is the third reference to the sitting down because he is the priest in the heavenly sanctuary who has finished his work and is now seated, a minister in the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle that the Lord, not man, set, set up. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so Jesus too had to offer something to offer. Now, if Jesus were on earth, he could not have been a priest, but since, since there were already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. The priesthood of Jesus is superior, nine, because Jesus entered the true tabernacle in heaven. The place where the human high priest served is a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary, just as Moses was warned by God, for he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, see to it that you make everything according to the design shown to you on the mountain. The high priest of Jesus is superior, 10, because of his superior ministry. And now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For Jesus is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. Only Jesus could and did negotiate a covenant with God that overflows with better promises. For, for if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have looked for a second one. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with, your, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I had no regard for them, says the Lord. The reason the old covenant was set aside was because the fathers broke the covenant and thus made it void. The priesthood of Jesus is superior because this new covenant, because of the new covenant that Jesus ushered in is permanent. And this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This new covenant is different because it's not dependent on ceremonies and outer conformities, but it's dependent on the inner transformation, which is eternal and permanent in the hearts of people. And only Jesus Christ could do that. And there will be no need at all for each one of you to teach his countrymen, for each one will teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, since they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to them and their evil deeds, and their sins I will remember no longer. The priesthood of Jesus is superior because the old covenant is made obsolete. By calling this covenant new, God has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated? will soon disappear. I want you to sit down. Now I knew I took a risk, uh, and I used the word very cautiously because this is God's word. I just kept reading it, and as I understood, I put my footnotes there. But Hebrews, along with Romans, is considered one of the difficult epistles to understand. But I want to encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, this living word, as you read it again and again and again and again, as the Spirit of God opens the truth to you, it will just catch your attention in such wonderful ways. You, will, you, you, you know, there's no depth to getting down to the beauties. And then your heart's are lifted up as you're confronted by the glories of Christ. And so I'm not sure if I in some way sparked an interest in your heart to go back and read the rest of Hebrews. Read it in a way that will pause to say, what is the writer 
telling us. And God willing, we can look at the rest of it later, but more importantly, what I'd like to do is for you to know that, that this is something that you need to, need to invest your life. That is the word of God. And so what we want to do for 2016 is we put out a plan for reading of God's word. We're doing this as a two-year plan so that we as a church can read through God's word. And that as we read through it, God will bring to our collective attention some of the, the, the precious truths that he has kept in there. But I just want to end very quickly with three questions that I, that I want to give you. But let me, let me summarize what he did in presenting the eternal son as the full and re, uh, final revelation. He's presenting that there's no one greater than the son. And he gives seven reasons why Jesus is greater than the angels. And he gives seven reasons why Jesus, the eternal word, became the incarnate word, or the question, why Christmas? He gives seven reasons why we are to consider the Son, and then he presents in Hebrews 7.26, for it is indeed fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, blameless, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's presented as one who's better than Moses, better than Levi, better than the Levitical priesthood. And he ends chapter 8 by giving 12 reasons why this priesthood that Jesus has ushered in is unlike any other, that he is our priest. And as you continue to read, you will see that the writer is just getting started about what we have received in Christ Jesus. And so the three questions I want to leave with you is this. Since God gave his all, his very best, what will be our response? What will be my response? What will be your response? And since we are asked to encourage each other and warn others, how will I encourage my brother and my sister? Because God has brought us into a community how will I warn them? Or will I turn my face away when I see that they're walking towards danger? Or will I encourage them when they're down? And since God is asking us to persevere, recognizing that you know, there will be trying times and difficult times, how will I persevere this week and all the days that God's going to give me. And so, dear friends, I, I don't know how many of you have this habit of reading God's word. If you don't, I want to urge you that, that that's, the, that's God's given tool for our Christian living. That as we read and we understand for our life and for, and for faith, it's sufficient. And that you will take that as something that you will, you will say, that's something I will do. Feed my soul. May his name be glorified. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that oftentimes our minds wander when it's just being read. But the work, Lord, we know it's your word. It's your inspired word. It's your spirit that illumines the word. And so, Lord, if in any way... Uh, my frailty, my weakness, my feebleness, Lord, was, 
uh, affected or impacted your word in any way, we pray that that would be completely taken away, that your word alone would reside in the hearts of these people, that your name be glorified, Lord, and that, Lord, that, that in the midst of your people, we will see you grow, uh, glorified and that we will grow moving from uh, the uh, basic foundations but moving on to maturity, moving from milk to meat, that we will grow to discern, understanding as we through practice and training as God's word says, that we will learn to discern the right from the wrong. May that be true for all of us, Lord. Thank you for answering our prayers in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen.